1789, George Washington wrote this in his Thanksgiving proclamation. It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favors. One of the things that we hold dearly to as a nation is that we were founded upon a belief in God. We were founded upon scriptural principles. We were founded with the understanding that our rights come from God and not the government. Now, the importance of that is if the government gives us our rights, the government can take them away. But we've been founded on this belief that God gives rights, unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we're thankful for that. We're thankful that our first president said it's the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. And, and that, of course, is the ultimate intent of this coming Thursday when we share this national holiday together. They are to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, humbly to implore His protection and favors. And uh, for the good part of our history, I think we lived under the blessing of the knowledge of the gospel, the impact of the scriptures upon our public discourse, and these things were just considered part and parcel. We taught them as part and parcel to who we are. Right up here, I just I think this is an awfully cool sign. Bob Dahl found this. When they were taken out, um, when they were taken down an old shed that we have, Jesus Christ, America's only hope. See, there was a day when to have something out there, you know, publicly from our church, that would have not been out of place. We would have felt very comfortable doing that. Personally, I think it'd be awesome if the Acts Committee could figure out a way to incorporate this somewhere into our into our decorating and not refresh it. Leave it beaten up like this because it tells us that there's a heritage within this church and within our country that there was that time when we called upon God and trusted Him as George Washington said. That's why we had have a thanksgiving in order to acknowledge His providence, His blessings, His goodness. But over time, there's been a bit of an erosion to that understanding, to that desire to acknowledge God's place in our nation. And we decided publicly, you know, we, did, we, we made decisions that said, guess what? We're going to throw Scripture and we're going to throw prayer out of our school systems. That was, decision was made long before most of us who are here were even alive, so... Don't think I'm placing anything on anybody here. But over time then, there's this thing that just erodes. Because the natural inclination of man, when he sets God aside, he does not elevate himself. The natural inclination of man, it will happen all the time. As he becomes more and more degraded. And so now, we have given set scripture and we've set prayer aside... And now we've decided that it's a right 
for an abortion. Now we've decided that it's, it's right. We ought to be celebrating that there's gender confusion being brought forth as normative, and we are to celebrate that. And if we don't, well, we're clearly on the wrong side of history, and we're haters. I'm going, not a hater. <laughs> Scripture tells us something about this stuff. So there's a decline. It's the human condition, friends. All of that is to lead us into the book of Nahum. You see, Nahum is written about a hundred years after Jonah. Now, Jonah is one of those prophets that we all remember. Jonah, that one's easy and fun. That one we get because Jonah has got the story of the big fish. And so we know he was in the belly of the big fish for a few days. And God had the fish kick him up on land. And then he went and he preached to Nineveh. And when he came and he preached to Nineveh that they had 40 days before God was going to bring judgment upon them, Nineveh responded. Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, repented of the direction it was going, and God withheld his judgment. And that's where the book of Jonah ends. It ends with this. Jonah was upset. He wanted to see the hammer fall. He wanted to see the Ninevites Uh, destroyed because of the type of evil that they had already afflicted upon his nation and upon others. And he was actually angry with God for showing grace to the Ninevites. But that was a hundred years ago. And in the ensuing hundred years, there's new generations that come in and don't remember that God had spared them. And this new generation comes in and they get a little bit proud and a little bit arrogant in the power that they have amassed to themselves. And they begin to believe nobody can defeat us. Who's going to stop us? In fact, there's one point where they make the declaration, someone declares, yeah, any of you guys going to stop? None of the gods of anybody else could stop us. Israel, do you think your God can stop us? Well, that was the wrong question to ask for the people of Israel. Because Nahum is written specifically to address the people of Nineveh and Assyria. And so there you got these two books. Jonah relates to the prophet in Nineveh and Assyria, and then you got Nahum, except within a hundred years there's a totally different setting. And in fact, Nahum is written to say to the people of Assyria, Yeah, our God is going to judge you. It is inescapable. One time you repented, but now you've gone back to your evil ways, and it is coming. And that's why the book begins with, chapter 1, verse 1, the burden against Nineveh. It's a burden for Nahum to speak this prophecy because he understands the toll is going to be great upon people's lives. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Now what I want you to notice is at the outset of the book, because it only gets worse from the little bit we read, I want you to notice how there is this thing of here's what's coming in judgment and here's who's bringing it. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers 
Uh, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt, and the earth, heaven, uh, he, the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. This is the God who is now engaging this nation of the Ninevites. Who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. And that's where Nahum begins. To describe this God who is powerful over nature and angry with what he sees. In fact, in verse 6, he he says this, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire. Indignation, anger, and fury. This is what God is feeling now as he is going to bring judgment. And then Nahum gives these these natural, uh, these illustrations in nature as to how serious it will be. I'm not saying these are things that are going to happen. They're poetic language, if you will, imagery that will give the people of Nineveh a sense as to how serious the judgment will come. Because the judgment is going to come from another nation that will defeat them because they think they can't be defeated. The rocks are thrown down by him. This is God who in his judgment he shows this picture of just boulders falling on these people. With an overflowing flood he will make an utter end of its place. So you can picture these people who rocks coming down, a flood washing them away, and darkness will pursue his enemies. And all of this in pitch darkness. Imagine being in that situation and how horrific that would be. And so what Nahum is trying to get across to the people of Nineveh. It's not going to be pretty and it is coming. So beware of that. If you really paid attention, when we read these opening verses, you notice we skipped from chapter, verse 6 to verse 8. That was intentional. Because we wanted to get a feel for what these verses are all about. Because when you then come to verse 7, tucked right in there, it's like, boy, it just jumps out of, out of everything right at you. Like, man, I wasn't expecting that. Because there's these dire warnings that are there. And in the midst of these dire warnings of the incredibly powerful God who's going to bring a very severe judgment upon Nineveh, right in the middle of that we have verse 7 that says this. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. Like it has a totally different feel to everything before and after it. Who's it written to? I think first it's written to the Israelites, because Nahum is an Israelite prophet, letting, reminding them, letting them know that this affliction that they've been under with Nineveh is coming to an end, and that uh, he has not forgotten them, and that 
uh, Nineveh will be dealt with. But I think secondarily it's appropriate for us to consider that perhaps, just as Jonah spoke corporately to the people of Nineveh, perhaps within this prophecy there's this thing, hey, come out from among them, those in Nineveh. Come out from among them because the judgment's going to come. Now you can either, you can either remain aligned with Nineveh and, 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 and suffer the fullness of God's fury or you can recognize that he is good. That he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust him. So that's our verse that we want to key in on. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. This peaceful verse in the midst of all this conflict. And we're just going to throw out three simple things. And the scripture tells us. In everything give thanks. That we're to always be thankful. And I remember a couple years back out at Trout Lake. Uh, Wild Man led us in a study about this, about always being thankful. Well, I just want to point out, just based on this verse alone, three things we can be thankful for. Because it's Thanksgiving week, right? And we can apply that to where we see our nation going, but I really am more concerned we think about it specifically as individuals, because I think all the truths apply. One, we can be thankful for God's essence. God's essence. The Lord is good. We hear that. It gets thrown out and sometimes it's, God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. We throw it out, we throw it out, we throw it out. But friends... This is something that we just don't throw out for a response from a crowd. This is something we need to understand and internalize. That in his very essence, God is good. That his motivations towards us are good. That everything that he does is oriented toward that which is good. That his desires for us are good. You see, friends... I contemplated this. Satan doesn't have to convince us that God doesn't exist in order to break down our relationship with him. He doesn't have to turn us into atheists. All he needs to do is to convince us that God isn't good. That's enough to break down our relationship with him. And then from there... Some of us will make the jump to, well, he must not even exist. You tell me God is good, and with all the evil I see around me, he can't even exist. Because that's an argument that is put forth time and again. But you see, if you think about the garden experience of Adam and Eve, what did, what did Satan say to Adam and Eve? He said, as God said, you shall die if you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that what he said? You shall not surely die, but God knows in the day you eat thereof, you shall become as gods, knowing good and evil. And effectively, he's saying, God just wants to keep the good stuff for himself. 
He's not well-oriented toward you. He's not good in his motivations. He's not good in his intentions. He's keeping you in the dark. There's this whole other realm because what had God created? You know the days of creation at the end of every day. God looked at what he'd made and it was good, right? Till the very end, he says, it was very good as he looked on everything. And God says, now here's how you keep it this way. Stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes in and says, don't you get it? He's kept that thing called evil, which they don't know what it is. He's keeping that from you, and that's the thing that'll make you a god. So don't trust him. Don't believe him. And they decided to say, well, let's figure out what that evil is. What are we missing here? And the entire creation, subject to futility, now came crashing in where now death and sin and destruction are a part of everyday experiences. That was the evil that the good God was trying to keep them away from, making it clear they were not to, it didn't need to be a part of their own personal experience. But the evil one was able to convince them, yep, he doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's keeping the good stuff for himself. And Nahum reminds us, God is good in his intentions towards us. What did Jesus say? He said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And what does he say about the evil one? He came to kill, steal, and destroy. The motivations between the two are diametrically opposed. But God's motivation is good towards us. Now he has to confront the evil. In order to maintain that which is good, in order to do things which are good, he can't just let evil run roughshod on things, so he does confront it, i.e., he's going to judge this nation. But his desires for us are good. So we're thankful for God's essence. Secondly, we can be thankful for God's presence because Nahum says he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. That idea of a stronghold is a place of refuge, a place where you can go and find safety, a place where you can be secure and be at peace. And, you know, we've all heard the stories and are aware when, you know, England was being bombed and they'd go down into the bomb shelters, right, where they hopefully would be uh, safe from the German airplanes going overhead and bombing things out. And that's warfare, people. I'm sorry, it is. But there's a place of safety, whether you're talking physical warfare or life's stuff that we have prayed for some people here. You're talking a spiritual warfare. There is a place where we can find peace in God, where he makes himself known to us. We prayed for Connie. We mentioned her situation when I was visiting with her about a week ago. As she was describing, it's kind of concerning, both she and her sister right now. Cancer are big questions in their lives, and their mom died of cancer. So it's like, yeah, that kind of puts you on edge. But she is the one who said, but we have the Lord. And in him, this is going to be okay. This is going to be all right. And I said, and Connie, that's real. There is a place of refuge in him where it's foundational to who we are and how we live. And, and she's like, yes, it is very real. 
and we can be thankful for God's presence because he is wanting to envelop us in him, in himself, and say it's going to be okay. It, it is going to be all right. And so we're thankful that he is a refuge. And particularly, friends, we need to at least mention this spiritually because we get so caught up in the things of, of this physical existence. We need to understand spiritually that in Christ, in Christ, we are protected from the chaos of the world. And in Christ, when God's judgment comes and falls, which it will, the scriptures tell us, because God in his goodness has to set this world aright again. But when his judgment falls, if we are in Christ, we are safe from that judgment. Remember, remember the picture given to us of Moses and the blood on the doorposts, the blood of the lamb that they had to slay, right? So that when God's judging angel came through, he would see the blood on the doorpost and it would pass over that home and the judgment on that home did not fall. There was no judgment on that home because by faith they entered into what God had provided for them for a refuge and for a place of safety. And we are in Christ if by faith we have received him, if we understood our need and said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner like everyone else around me and I thought I was a little better than others, but I'm not. And you alone offer me something where I can find refuge because of the judgment that my sin deserves and it's in Christ. That's why you know, Paul exhorts us in Colossians, in Colossians, uh, if, you then, uh, if you then be dead, seek those things which are above, for you are hidden in him. You are hidden in him. That's where your safety is. He is a place of refuge. So we can be thankful for God's presence. Then lastly, we can be thankful for God's omniscience. Because this verse that just stands here in the midst of all this chaos speaks into the chaos of our lives. And he says... And he knows those who trust in him. Is that not a wonderful truth, friends? That God knows us when we are trusting in him. He knows us. That that is where our faith is. He, he knows life is hard. He knows that there's difficulties. He knows that there's chaos going around us. But he knows us and that our trust is in him. And he is being our refuge at that point, it is so important to us that we're known by our Father, is it not? Is it not? I mean, Mike just gave testimony about Larry. I just wanted to bring a greeting, and he's got us all on the verge of tears, right? Because of the role that Larry has had in his life and the impact that he's had. It's important that, we, that we're known by our Father. And I, I saw this early on. I saw it as a teenager. I saw this before I was walking with Jesus. Seeking to understand his impact on my life. By dating some girls who dad, whose dads did not get to know them. Dating some girls whose, whose dads were just kind of peripheral to their lives. And they ached for the love of their father. And they filled that in. They filled in what was lacking 
by looking forward in the next young boy that came around. And they gave themselves to this young boy thinking somehow he was going to meet this need. Which is why I say to all you young girls, because I've watched this, all right, young girls, if you'll memorize this, this will help you in a lot of life. Boys are stupid and they aren't worth your time. You need to be reminded of that every so often. Okay? And I say that because I hurt for those girls who I know their dad wasn't engaged in their lives and didn't know them. And there's something needing to be filled. But it isn't just girls. It's different with guys, but guys need to have their dads know them also. I know by my own experience, I know from a young man by the name of Joel, who when I was ministering at a youth ministry level, we're sitting in McDonald's one day, and he, so tell me about your dad, Joel, because I'd never seen his dad. He said, I wouldn't know my dad if he was sitting in this McDonald's with us. I have no idea who my dad is. So Joel, how did you handle that as a younger boy growing up? I just told everybody my dad worked down in Texas. He had to fill in some way the shame that he didn't know his dad and that his dad wasn't a part of his life. But I promise you, unless God has invaded into Joel's life, I promise you, the last I saw him, it was not going in a good direction. We need to be known by our Father. And God knows us. And he knows where our hearts are at. And he knows that sometimes maybe we even struggle to trust him. We're trying. But sometimes it's hard. But he knows that we're calling on him and he desires to do good in our lives as he is that place of refuge. When we call upon him, it's not that our, it's not that our voices aren't heard. They are. And he is effective and he is working. Now sometimes we have a hard time believing that, don't we? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. I have been there since walking with Jesus. I've been in that place where it's been so painful. I've wondered, God, do you even exist? Do you even exist? Or in my anger, I've said, you've given me a bad deal. And if I asked you guys to raise hands, there'd be dozens and dozens and dozens of hands that go up said, I've had the same experience where I really wasn't sure I could trust God. And even in those difficult times, God is calling to us and saying, come, trust me. I am a refuge and I'm well intended towards you and I hear your heart calling out and I am here to be present in your life and I will work something good even in the midst of these painful circumstances. So I've been listening these last couple weeks, I, I, I've been listening to some, some stuff with... I, I happen to enjoy Ravi Zacharias. I do. And um, most recently, listening to some stuff about how we as believers deal with the question of pain and suffering in this world that we can see as opposed to atheists. Because atheists can look at that and say, there cannot be a God. There cannot be a God who is good 
Because look at all the evil that he would be permitting. So I can't believe that God even exists. And that becomes their jumping off point. And each wrestles within their own worldview as to how do you put this together? How do you deal with this, this entire um, uh, question of evil and pain and suffering that is obvious around us? Nobody's denying that, that it's there. I'm going to give it another stab because I've tried this before and I, it's one of those things I'm not sure I've found the words yet. You see, we look to the Scriptures and we try and come up with answers that we can line these two up. God is a good God and yes, the world is evil and then we start walking through all these steps as to how we can justify our worldview that God is good. And I find myself, I find myself time and again feeling like one, in fact, the, the most recent thing that I listened to, a mom is asking a question and they're giving this long, philosophical, drawn-out answer. <laughs> and when it's, in a, it's among a group of Christians, it's a question and answer time. And, and when it's done, this guy gives this philosophical, but theologically correct answer, and everybody applauded. And I thought to myself, if I was that mom, I'm not sure I'd be applauding with that answer. You see, because we're not going through that kind of time, We have these nice, sweet answers. They work, don't they? Our answers work when we're not in the midst of the pain. But then when we get in the pain, those answers sometimes feel kind of trite. And I I, I don't want to come across as trite at all. But I feel sometimes like we go about it all wrong that we look through the scriptures and try and find those things that we can explain why, okay, uh, here's why and how God is using this pain in your life. And so therefore, just be fine, brother, be fine, sister, just be at peace. It's all good. And I don't see the scriptures that way. I tend to see them more this way. Hopefully it'll minister to someone You get to the end of the Bible, the close of the written revelation, the account of Christ is going to return. He's going to do the thousand-year thing. He's going, to, he's going to take away all the evil nations. Satan is going to have one last rebellion to determine who it is that is really trusting God or not. And it will clarify everything. There's going to be final judgments. New Jerusalem is going to come in. Eternity is going to be ushered in. All of this stuff is happening. And before giving these last little sign-offs, Jesus says this. There's only a couple verses after this in our Bible, so I want you to see how close to the end it is. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. And I don't go through the scriptures looking for some way to identify how I can line up a good God with a broken world. I look at the scriptures and here's when I come to that verse at the end of the whole thing. Here's what it's been saying to me. The world is broken. It is broken. 
sin and death have taken hold when Adam and Eve said, we'll try that evil thing. Let's try that for a while. It broke everything. In the midst of it all, God is saying, it's broken. I know it's broken. I know it's broken. But I have something good for you. And I will be a refuge to you if you will trust me. Because I am the only one who can set this all right again. My dear friends, none of us get through this world unscathed. Not a one. Not a one. And if I pointed out to you the pain that I know exists in this fellowship right now, you'd be amazed. And that's what I, only what I know. You all haven't shared your pain with me. The scripture's clear the world is broken, but they're also clear that a good God in the person of Jesus Christ wants to wrap us up in his love and in his redeeming work on our behalf so that our sin can be forgiven so that we can learn to walk in a new life, so that the sin of others that has afflicted us, we can forgive them. And he wants to enter into this close relationship with us where he knows us. And he makes himself known to us. Because he does love us that much. May I encourage you today if you've never entered into that place of trust, the Lord knows those who trust him. If you've never called upon the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way, Lord Jesus, I need you. Can I encourage you that this is the day to call out to him. Say, Lord, I'm, I live in a hurting world and I'm a hurting person. And I want to find refuge in you and I need to be forgiven of my sin. So I'm putting my trust in you right now. Be my Savior, please. And he will not turn you away. Father, thank you. Thank you that this Thanksgiving, there are things we can hold to, things we can hold to regardless of our circumstances whereby you are with us, present, walking us through, bringing us to a good end, Lord, and that ultimately, eternally, you desire for us to be with you. And you've made that possible. So, Father... As you're calling out to us now, may we respond. May we respond with, yes, Holy Father, I come to you and I receive your Son as my Savior, even now, in Jesus' name.